Hi, this is Stephanie Fay, and this is season two. Thanks for joining. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode 12. Thanks for joining me. In today's episode, we're going to explore the concept of moral injury and explore it as an opportunity for us to dig deeper and widen our view of the experience of humans as a socially cooperative species and the importance of social trust, what happens when those bonds are broken as well as the importance of regulatory and cognitive flexibility to help us put past events into a more flexible context that can help people find freedom from something called maladaptive cognitive stuck points. And we're going to look at all of this, this concept of morality and social trust as part of a way of being more energy efficient and resilient as a system in terms of the human species. So let's start with an illustration of a few of these concepts. Imagine that I give you a stick and a ball and your goal is to find as many ways for the stick and the ball to be useful to you, to find its utility. If you were to use the stick and the ball in the exact same way over and over and over again, and you compare that with finding multiple ways of using the stick and the ball, so for example, breaking the stick into smaller sticks, maybe opening up the ball, seeing what the contents are, dissecting it so that it becomes a different shape, using the material differently, maybe puncturing the ball with the stick and holding it that way. There are many different ways that using that same structure could be broken apart, reformed, restructured, and reorganized in ways that might expand the number of possibilities of utility and usefulness it has for you. And By usefulness, we can talk about it being a type of tool or technology for gaining mastery over the environment, adapting to conditions, gaining more resources, but also in terms of the necessity we have for movement and play and regulating our nervous system. So in the form of toys and entertainment, things like that. So I bring up that example because I think that When we think about negative events that we have either participated in or witnessed, we may end up using that event in a fairly rigid way in terms of its impact and meaning in our narrative, in our storyline, in the trajectory of our life. So we may end up having a negative event really only having one purpose. Maybe it's to confirm a belief about the world. Let's say that people are not to be trusted. The world is not safe, etc. We may use it to confirm a belief about ourselves that I am incompetent. I am 
not to be trusted. I am a bad person. So what we often do is we take an event and just like the ball and the stick, we allow it to only really serve one purpose. We don't expand the repertoire of what the utility of that negative emotion or negative event could serve us. And I'll go more into it later in this episode, but something that is, in my opinion, very beautiful about the exploration of moral injury is that we are looking at finding ways to make negative events and negative painful emotions. We're finding ways to bring them into a new light and allow them to expose resilience and strength and other really powerful aspects of the human experience that can make us more empowered and find new ways to contribute to a greater whole and find a sense of inner regulation and desired inner states. So to now go into an example that will lead into this idea of moral injury, imagine that you know of somebody who served in a war and who has symptoms of stress in some way or another. You have not diagnosed them and you don't know exactly what their issue is, but every time they are invited to a social gathering, for example, they don't go. There may be some assumptions that get made of that person. So if they seem to display some kind of stress or anxiety about going to social gatherings, one assumption that might get made is that they could get triggered by the noise or the overwhelm of stimulus that's there. And that could be true. There could be uh, an avoidance of situations that might trigger a type of hyperarousal or agitation or even sympathetic nervous system response. There's also another possibility, which is that this person might also have some aspects of dealing with what is called moral injury. And in the realm of moral injury, they may be dealing with self-condemnation or a belief that they are a bad human being and should not be trusted, that they don't deserve to be relaxed or happy. So let me go into what moral injury is and how it is different from some of the other types of experiences people might have from adverse experiences or trauma or negative events in their life. Moral injury, in contrast to something like trauma, is not a danger or fear-based type of experience. So trauma is generally more defined as an overwhelm in a sense of the nervous system due to a threat or danger, whether we wit someone witnesses it or is victim to it, and an overwhelm of the resources capable of defending oneself or protecting oneself from that type of danger. Moral injury has more to do with non-danger-based types of experiences. And these experiences can be a sense of betrayal, a breaking of social trust, a transgression of someone's values that they hold. And the one of the definitions by Jonathan Shea in his paper on moral injury 
is that moral injury is present when there has been a betrayal of what's right, either by a person in authority or by oneself and in a high stakes situation. Other researchers like Litz, Nash, and colleagues in their book on adaptive disclosure and their multiple papers on moral injury divide moral injury into bearing witness to perpetrating or failing to prevent events that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. Moral injury focuses on symptoms related to guilt, shame, anger, disgust, and betrayal. So Litz and colleagues also categorize the types of trauma that in, in their sphere, they study military. So the types of traumas that they are discussing in their theory are life-threatening event, which is more classified with the arousal states, vigilance, and those types of symptoms that are related to post-traumatic stress. But they also recognize that there are many other things that occur in the types of events that, for example, veterans have experienced that haunt or consume them. And one of the quotes from their book is that even when service members develop a life-threat-based stress injury in theater, arguably the most pressing problem is not high states of fear and arousal, but rather the self-condemnation and guilt that may arise from letting peers and leaders down because of perceived or real temporary incapacitation in the field. So other people who have looked at this idea of moral injury and moral distress have also looked at it in terms of ethical dilemmas. So Andrew Jamieton also explored this in a book on nursing issues, that moral distress arises when one knows the right thing to do, but institutional constraints make it nearly impossible to pursue the right course of action. So there is a component of this failure of what we perceive in in an authority figure or an institution or in us, a failure to prevent things that violate our moral expectations and moral values. And we also see differences in this type of stress or injury compared with the more threat and danger-based type of injuries that occur through trauma. So we see difference in brain mechanisms in a sense, when it comes to that hypervigilance and fear from danger-based types of trauma, we see more of a higher metabolism in the amygdala, according to some studies. Whereas with moral injury, with non-danger-based types of injuries, we see a higher metabolism in the precunius, which has some association with self-referential processing. What's important to think about when we're talking about these different types of injuries is that whether they're psychic, emotional, moral, or danger-based in a sense, is it's important for us to understand that there is this spectrum. There is this wider palette uh, that exists within us because that's going to help us treat and approach these issues differently. If we continue to only assess, in a sense, a person's sense of safety, because of events that they've experienced, we may not get to the heart of the problem because it may not just be about vigilance. Like in my example of the person not attending social gatherings, 
It might not have to do necessarily with just the overstimulus of sound. There might be a very deep, deep belief in who they are as a person and who the world is and a lack of trust or shame or self-condemnation that exists within them. And that might be where we need to go with them first. There may even be an avoidance of getting treatment in people who are experiencing this sense of moral injury because they don't believe they are worth it. They believe that they might be monsters or incompetent or horrible people because of their failure to prevent or even perpetrating events that transgress this idea of their moral values. In some research, they have found that there are various sources of moral injury, which I think is also helpful for us to think about as we explore this topic. One of them is organizational. So when there is some type of hierarchy and a person in an authority position, this is where some of these moral injury types of events can occur. If the person in an authority position, for example, leads other members of that group to go into a dangerous situation unnecessarily for a mission that is futile or not needed in some way, or a person in an authority position ignoring different aspects that might be putting people in harm's way unnecessarily as well, or a betrayal of trust, a, an applying of rules to one group and not another. These are other types of this social betrayal in a sense. I also transfer this to a family system as well when there is someone in an authority position and they fail to prevent or they even put other members in harm's way or they concentrate on their own distress to the detriment of the other members. Another source of moral injury that has been seen in some other research is environmental. So when situations are so chaotic and high stakes that there is not enough time or information for people to make other decisions. And so split decisions get made that end up haunting the person who made them because they just didn't have enough information in that, in that moment. And it may have been so high stakes that there really wasn't a choice that would have completely aligned with their moral values. So part of the research sees that in examples of people in combat situations where they have to make a very split second decision between protecting their troop or seeing a civilian get hurt. Those are the types of injuries that people can come back with from different events that go beyond this idea of fear and safety and have more to do with what has punctured, in a sense, that fabric of their morality and what they think is right Another source of that moral injury that is seen in some of the research is social and cultural. So when there is a us versus them type of tribalism, there are people that can get so consumed in that group identity that they also end up making decisions that actually transgress their moral values. If they see humans as inherently good, for example, and then they make decisions that violate that belief by seeing somebody else in a way that gets them to act in with that person in a way that transgresses that belief that people are inherently good. That would be another example. <music> so 
So this is more the flavor in a sense of moral injury. There's something much deeper that is going on in terms of these injuries that have to do with a sense of what we can call morality. And I'm going to use definitions from Jonathan Haidt from NYU. And he talks about morality as interlocking sets of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate selfishness and make cooperative social life possible. And in a lot of this type of morality research, they see universal norms in terms of that, such as protecting the innocent and vulnerable as one. And so what we see here is there is this concept of regulating selfishness and making cooperative social life possible. When those values are violated, either by our, by oneself because of the situation they found themselves in or because we witness it and or failed to prevent what we saw happening. This can lead to the sense of moral pain and moral emotions. So Jonathan Haidt talks about moral emotions as those emotions that are linked to the interests or welfare either of society as a whole or at least of persons other than the judge or agent. There's something about this self-transcendent aspect, this regulation of selfishness, this ability to take a higher perspective and look at how different events affect other people that is important uh, within our nature. And I would add the perspective that from a systems point of view and humans, the human species is a system. We are interacting nodes. There is no way around that, especially at this point in our evolution terms of technology and social communication. We are inter interacting nodes. We are therefore a network. We are a system. The best way for a system to be as resilient as possible is to have things in place that prevent the system from having to constantly restore and repair things. So that means that something in place, some type of signaling, you could call it, that is in place that allows for all of the cells to have some level of care and protection from other surrounding cells or other connected cells in some way. Because if we don't have that, then there would be destruction, too much destruction of these cells, and the entire system would have to constantly use its resources just for that. So by having a this morality in a sense which to me is an energy efficiency question, by having this construct that's there in terms of our signaling and what we look for and attempt to assist with is a, in a sense, a preventative strategy that we do look to other nodes and we look to how to preserve this social cooperation and social harmony as a way of keeping the system the entire system, which must include every single member of the species, because we are interconnected. It must include some integration of a behavior that allows for the integrity of the system to stay intact, in a sense, and not use all of its resources for repair. On an individual level, the other thing that contributes to the resilience of the system, which in, again, this case is the human species as a system, what contributes to the resilience of that 
is an ability to adapt and flex according to continuously changing events and conditions and environments. And part of that is an ability to have future-oriented thinking so that there can be an extrapolation of what is happening now and how that can be figured out ahead of time so that resources can already start to be accumulated and they don't need to be accumulated in a time of tragedy where situations then become chaotic and there's a different type of decision-making happening. So resilience of this system, the human species system, is also from our ability to access this long-term type of extrapolation, long-term projection of thinking and innovation in that sense. And the only way to really access those higher order features of the brain is we must be in a state of safety. If we are in a state of vigilance and defensiveness, the resources of our system is going to be devoted simply to that, to the very short-term, what is happening right now type of defense. And so this concept of morality in terms of a efficiency of the system type of allocation of resources is that as we keep in mind, as we regulate selfishness, and as we keep in mind that there is a bigger system at play that we are part of, and that we are contributing to being a part of keeping that system resilient and adaptive, the more we contribute to this idea of social trust and psychological safety, in that sense, obviously physical too, but psychological safety of the entire system, the more of us, the more the nodes and the cells of this system are not using resources for defense. And that then allows for, first of all, more restoration of this, of the replenishment of our internal organs, as one example. But then all that leftover energy, once that is taken care of, can now be used for the more expensive type of calculations and neural activity that go into thinking of innovations and future consequences and long-term types of projections, which is important for the entire system as a whole. So morality, we don't need to go into it as a discussion of this very subjective type of view. I think that it's playing a role. I think there is a design within nature in that sense of this concept of morality. And I believe we probably can see this on a bacterial level and a fungi level of something to do with keeping the social fabric of taking care. And again, that still sounds like a, a soft term, but taking care of all the nodes of the network in a way that allows for the resilience and integrity of the entire system. I wanted to just add that as a perspective as we talk about this idea of morality, that it's not just a soft kind of term. It's actually, I believe, part of a very inherent, intrinsic feature of resource allocation that goes in line with our nature as complex adaptive systems, right? That complex continue to complexify. And so when things go against that, they're going against something very powerful, a very powerful force that is there within us. And I believe that's part of why these types of moral injuries, these injuries that affect our belief in our ability to trust others and trust ourselves, I think part of why that haunts and consumes people longer than some of the fear-based stuff is because there is a sense that it affects so much more than just us. So there's a beauty in 
the pain that comes from these moral emotions, which is that we are recognizing that we have let down others or others have let down us. But in that, there is a recognition of how important it is for us to be part of this bigger network. And one other aspect of why I think it's important to talk about moral injury, and in the following section, I'm going to talk about different uh, commonalities in the approaches that are being used to navigate it. But I believe that moral injury affects more of us than we currently understand. And this is a new field of exploration. So I think the more that we dive into this and look at it and examine it, the more nuanced we're going to get in terms of understanding what someone's pain actually is. And that is going to allow us to get better at pattern recognition, that we are then able to detect that someone is actually in a state of self-condemnation, not necessarily vigilance or arousal. We are going to approach that person very differently. And part of that approach, which I'll talk about in the next section, is going to have to do with regulatory and cognitive flexibility. So being able to expand and flex our cognitions and stories that we have about events and what they mean about us and the world. Another aspect, so not, it's not just about nuancing and getting more sophisticated with our understanding of human pain. I think that's one aspect that's very important and a gift of exploring moral injury. But another aspect of that, that is that it overlaps and I think it touches many different aspects of our life. In one sphere, many of us are directly or indirectly connected to somebody who has been in a combat situation, in a war zone, someone who has been a part of a collective trauma, historical trauma, someone who has witnessed, failed to prevent, or perpetrated an act that has transgressed their sense of moral values and beliefs, someone who has experienced that sense of letting others down and not protecting someone, for example, or even being someone who perpetrates an act. In one way or another, all of us have connections to people who are going through that. So I think it's it overlaps and it's a layer that is worth exploring in many different realms of mental health and psychoeducation and neuroscience as well. There are also parallels in our current society of feeling let down by authority figures. And I also see some transference of that, some parallels between that and authority figures in our own communities, our tribes, and even our family networks. So this concept of feeling let down by an authority figure or being constrained by institutions that don't align with what we feel is right, I think there is some conflict and confusion that is there as well that I think moral injury is a realm that would allow us to explore that and find some nuances to that as well. So lastly, let's explore some of the approaches that the different therapies and processes that are being explored for moral injury, what they in a sense have in common and how this can help us just on a insight level of thinking about how we can navigate these waters 
I think this can be helpful for any of us who are therapists, coaches, parents, teachers, leaders in any way. Have some other circuits firing as to explanations of other people's behavior that is not only based on the more commonly discussed aspects of trauma and fear and arousal and the nervous system kind of stuff. So a few of the approaches that are being explored for moral injury are acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure, narrative exposure, and adaptive disclosure. So I'm not going to go into all of those therapies. I will list links on the website page for you to explore those further. I'm going to just pull out from all of those some important concepts. So particularly with cognitive processing therapy, there is a, an exploration of what's called maladaptive cognitive stuck points. And these are, in a sense, erroneous beliefs about oneself, others, and the world. Prolonged exposure has some aspects of that as well. Adaptive disclosure, what it does that's very special is it really subdivides these types of events and experiences of people into, and I mentioned this earlier, but into life threat and danger, loss, and moral injury. And it proposes different approaches for each of those. So with life threat, it looks at it through the lens of fear and panic, maybe dissociation, and looks at the corrective elements having more to do with safety and confidence as well. Whereas loss is more associated with sadness or numbness. And some of the corrective elements might be related to reconnecting with others and re-engagement. Whereas moral injury, they explore through the lens of guilt and shame. And the corrective elements that they see there are forgiveness and compassion. And so forgiveness and compassion are definitely a theme that comes up in all of these therapies. And what's interesting about forgiveness is that, again, I also see this as something that has to do with higher order brain circuitry. So in my experience working with forgiveness with clients and groups, is that a really big component of it is a lighting up of circuitry that is less focused on only the person, so the self and the other in that event. And it expands the view to see a few things. One, other interconnected nodes that played a role in the event. So if they're, let's say, thinking about the moral distress is more externalized towards someone else, and so there's contempt or rage against that person. In the forgiveness process, there's a activation of circuitry that allows that person to almost take a like zoomed up perspective and they're able to see different, so they expand the time horizon so that it's not just that moment, first of all. So they're able to almost see perspectives of past events that may have led up to that person's actions. And then they also see interconnected nodes of the other people that that person has interacted with and the role that those interactions may have played in that person's actions. And so by lighting up that circuitry, what is occurring is a, a cognitive flexibility or what's also called explanatory flexibility. And so this is circuitry that allows someone to get unstuck because a lot of what I see in the distress that's caused by these events, 
whether traumatic or the moral injury related ones, is it's like a loop. There's a rumination and the person can't get out of that scene. And that's something that we see in a lot of different theories from trauma, including from Freud, that something traumatic that happens, so this will be with moral injury as well as any kind of more threat-based, danger-based scenarios, it's a scene that wasn't completed. So there was no resolution in a way that was adaptive for that person at the time. So it's an incomplete scene, and there are different mechanisms that might occur because of the incompleteness of that scene. And so some of those defense mechanisms that might occur, one is complete suppression. So absolute avoidance of anything related to anything that could trigger the emotions of that scene. And so that can lead to a total avoidance and withdrawal from life and anything that could trigger those emotions, as well as suppression that occurs in the use of substances to avoid thinking and numbing, distraction, so using devices and other addictions as well to avoid that, as well as almost phobias, so really staying away from any situation that has some type of resemblance to that scene or the person. And also something Freud calls repetition compulsion, which is wanting to, in a sense, master that scene, to gain mastery over what happened by reenacting it. So by talking to people in a certain way or being attracted to situations or relationships that might allow them to go through the scene again, but this time get it the way they wanted to get it. And the tricky part with that is that because this is coming from an unconscious place, usually people that are in repetition compulsion, or I call it attract, attract to reenact, you attract something to reenact it. It's happening on this unconscious level. And so the person doesn't actually have new circuits to fire to address this event in a new way. So they end up just repeating the event the way it played out in many ways through their defense mechanisms. And another mechanism that comes from psychoanalytic research as well is a rationalization or conscious types of explanations of events. And so that is something that we also see in these different processes and therapies used for moral injury and post-traumatic stress is this concept called assimilation or accommodation. So trying to get an event to fit in with a pre-existing belief. So if the belief is that people are good and you acted in a certain way, then to assimilate that, you might just say, okay, so if that's true, if people are good and I did this thing, it therefore means I am a bad person. I am a monster in some way. Accommodation can often lead to a sense of overgeneralization. So this is where if something happened where a person in an authority position betrayed one's trust, that there may be now a, a way to create a new belief structure, which is that all people in authority positions are not to be trusted. It's a sense of trying to create some type of conscious explanation to a past event. And what is challenging for all of this is that all of this is happening on an unconscious level and often in a very repetitive way that's fixed and rigid. And so in cognitive processing therapy, they call these stuck points, this rigidity to these types of beliefs and explanations. (laughs) 
so what all of these different therapies, part of what their process is, is first of all, taking the unconscious and making it conscious. And part of what is unconscious are the, is the pain and the feelings. So particularly these moral pains. So these processes, some of them include some type of exposure in vivo, which is like real life situations or imaginal where they have the person bring up the situation and really allow them to feel the pain, feel the emotions. By doing that, by accessing those feelings, what you're doing is you're activating the circuits from that event. So the circuits that you know trigger different effects and physiological sensations within your body that then, because you are now in a different time and a different context, you have the safety and ability and new, more advanced, mature circuits at this point, because you've lived life a little bit longer and you have some other perspectives, you're able to add those perspectives and light up those circuits with the activation of the old circuits that are associated with those emotions. So you're, in a sense, joining an immature version of you and what happened there that didn't have a lot of insight yet with a more mature version of your circuits and all the networks. And you're allowing them to join together to allow you to, first of all, make those emotions conscious and now have circuitry that can allow you to put it into a different context. And like I mentioned just briefly earlier, is that the circuits that then get lit up in those processes where you're allowing the emotions to come up from that immature version, in a sense, the immature circuitry, when you can expand the circuits to go to a much longer time horizon and more interconnected nodes, you allow for way more perspectives to come into that situation. And so if the forgiveness is towards someone else, for example, and, you know, when I use the word forgiveness, I'm really, uh, a definition that I like has to do with letting go of negative feelings associated with an event. Part of that is when we're able to expand these perspectives, it makes it less about just me and that person, which makes it less personal. And that personal aspect, the personal offense, the personal injury of that event is part of what gets it very locked in within us. And I believe that's part of why we see these networks associated with self-referential processing is we make it mean something very important about us and our narrative, our identity. But by expanding those circuits and allowing other interconnected nodes to come into our awareness that played a part of that event, it becomes less personal. So it doesn't have to be so self-referential. And that allows it to, because anything that's very self-referential is very frightening to us because it means that it's about us. When you can expand that view to be higher and you see how many interconnected nodes, all the different events that affected that person, for example, and the people that affected it and the institutions and the systems, et cetera, et cetera. Now it becomes not so personal, which means it doesn't have to mean as much about your specific identity. It can mean more about the entire context. So that can help with releasing some of the personal injury emotions and circuits associated with that person. And if the moral injury, if the the condemnation is to oneself that you felt like that person felt like they let someone down or they witnessed an event and didn't do anything about it. They turned away from someone in need or they actually perpetrated something in a high stakes situation that transgressed their beliefs. If it's that self-condemnation, 
the same thing happens in this concept of bringing the those feelings in that event to the conscious awareness now, lighting up new circuits. And this can happen in the context of these types of therapies. As an important example, all the therapies that I've mentioned, looking at it from a higher perspective. So by seeing, by expanding the time horizon and seeing the interconnected nodes with us, that also helps us put our behavior into context. So if we are able to expand that time horizon, look at all the events that led up, what was happening in that moment, and all the other interconnected players that have that played a role in our action at that time, that also makes it less personal, which means it takes it away from being a part of our identity. And when something is released from being our identity, it, it's like it releases its grip from that circuitry that just keeps firing. Because when it's identity-based circuitry, in a sense, like the self-referential idea, this narrative, when it's circuitry that's lit up like that, it, it's like it, it becomes its own structure that almost needs to stay in place because that becomes our identity and it has a sense of integrity to it. So by allowing for these higher perspectives to come in and release it being just about us and our identity, it loosens up those circuits in a sense so that we can explore other aspects of our narrative. And this is important because when we have circuitry lit up that is part of this, what they call erroneous belief or these cognitive stuck points, this idea of an identity that I am a bad person or I am a monster, I am incompetent or other people are monsters or the world is unsafe or whatever those are. There is no flexibility in there. There's a narrowing of a repertoire of behaviors we can actually enact in order to respond to that. Because if the world is unsafe and that's the only possibility we have, there's a very narrow repertoire of behaviors we can choose from. As well as when it's, when it's one of those stuck points, when it's one of those beliefs and identity-based kind of structures, our awareness and our attention will continue to, in a sense, fire to confirm it. Because it's uh, an identity is something that then creates future trajectories. It's what creates the predictive algorithms for the next events. And so it's, a, it's like a tightly knit structure of, of networks in a sense. So the more we can add perspectives, the more light we can shine with different perspectives of events that have happened to us, the more we light up circuits that are outside of that identity, outside of that negative event defined me. And that is part of what helps us broaden and expand our repertoire of possibilities and the cues that we look for in our world and the explanations we have about ourselves and others. And so that's, in a sense, the second element of what these different therapies have in common. So the first is bringing the unconscious to the conscious, and specifically pain and emotions. The second is navigating these stuck points, these maladaptive cognitive structures, and allowing for competing evidence to come into the picture. And so competing circuits, that higher perspective. And then the third element that many of these have in common is they show the utility of these painful emotions. So by acknowledging that someone feels shame or guilt or rage even against something they saw that they felt was not right, 
there's a utility to that. That type of emotional pain is also what can get someone to seek forgiveness or to contribute to a movement that helps other people not go through that or to clarify their values as well as to what they really truly believe is right and good in the world. And particularly uh, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, but all of these have some element of this. An important new perspective that we can explore within these negative events that have happened to it, that actually, let me say more, the painful emotions is that if we can find a way to look at how that really gets us to re-engage and clarify what a value is, and then find ways to engage that value here and now, that allows for that event to actually have utility. It actually is something that almost creates a new type of energy flow for new action that is inspired now in terms of helping others. And what we can do in that process is, let's say an event happens and there is this moral injury that occurs, this feeling of not right, this feeling of injustice, shame, rage, self-condemnation, whatever that is. We can take that and now, again, look into how this plays into a value that we hold dear and look back in our life as to how we have expressed that value throughout our lives as children, as a teenager, as a young adult, et cetera, et cetera, how we have been in touch with that value throughout our life. What that can do is now it's creating a connection of aspects of our entire life that we can bring forward into here and now and connect it all together, connect all these separate parts of us. We can bring them all together into one cohesive whole where we look back on us as a baby, as an infant, as a child, et cetera, et cetera. We look at the values that we've held dear, how they got violated in an event, and then take that as clarification of how important that value is to us and then re-engage it here and now. So rather than look at it as a lost value or simply a violated value, we look at it when there is some type of moral pain, we look at it as a point of inspection of how important certain things are to us. And that gives it a sense of utility. So I think that's a really important aspect of exploring this entire realm of moral injury. And I'll leave you just with a a final example from a book called Recovering from Moral Injury. And I'll list all of the resources on the website. But it's this idea, and Lawrence Gonzalez also talks about this in his Explorations of Trauma which is that if somebody had a deep cut, let's say in their leg, and there was a lot of bleeding and scar tissue, and it then prevented them from doing activities they used to do, we wouldn't consider that person to have a cut disorder. There are important aspects and utility to bleeding and to the scar tissue, as well as to there, there's an opportunity when someone is not able to do certain activities there's an opportunity for them to explore new ones. And so in that same context, we can look at these negative events and what has happened and the different types of mechanisms that have occurred in response to that event as important, as valuable and adaptive and useful to us in a sense. If we can look at it through that lens and actually ask the question of how is this useful? What is the utility of this pain or this event? 
it allows for different circuits to light up that can help us explore different vantage points of how to view this. And I think that's an important part of the healing process. So very quick overview, we're exploring the concept of moral injury and we're seeing different aspects to it that are nuanced from the concept of trauma in terms of being threat or danger-based. And so in a sense, moral injury has different types of emotions that may occur and different stuck points that occur that have to do with the concept of morality. And we looked at morality as a type of construct that actually is helpful for a system to be more energy efficient and regulates selfishness and improves the capacity for interconnecting nodes, which are us humans, to have a cooperative social life, which is important for our resilience as a system. And then we looked at the different themes of the therapies and processes and approaches that are being used to explore and navigate this realm of moral injury. And one of those is to bring unconscious pain and emotions to consciousness, as well as the unconscious beliefs and thought structures, to then look at these stuck points and these rigid beliefs, but expand views outwards and expand the time horizon and the interconnected players so that the injuries can be less potentially personal and less rigid. And then to look at the utility of painful moral emotions as a gift, in a sense, that can give us fuel and ideas for how we contribute to the species as a whole and society. So thank you for joining me for this episode. A couple of things that you can email me if you're interested in hearing more. I'm going to be holding a master collective type of training. It will be online for now, once a month, and finish with a celebratory party somewhere in person. That I will put that up on my website sometime, I think, in February. But email me at hello at stephaniefay.com if you're interested. And I'm also going to be offering organizations, neuroeducation seminars that can include some EEG collection and neurofeedback. So bringing some of the caps with me and talking about brainwaves and hooking people up with electrodes so they can actually witness it in live time. So if you're interested in any of that, you can email me at hello at stephaniefay.com and check out my website for other articles and as well as the sources for this episode. Thank you.